Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Frank Churchill's haircut. So for today's discussion of Frank's haircut, we are obviously taking a look at Emma. We are about halfway through the novel. Jane Fairfax and Frank Churchill have both arrived in Highbury, and Emma feels like she's getting on pretty well with Frank and liking him very much when something happens to give her a momentary pause. So here it is from the text. Emma's very good opinion of Frank Churchill was a little shaken the following day by hearing that he was gone off to London merely to have his hair cut. A sudden freak seemed to have seized him at breakfast, and he had sent for a chaise and set off, intending to return to dinner, but with no more important view that appeared than having his hair cut. There was certainly no harm in his traveling 16 miles twice over on such an errand, but there was an air of foppery and nonsense in it, which she could not approve. Just, it's raising an eyebrow for her. So in some ways, this is a very straightforward scenario. A gentleman gets a haircut. Case closed. However, <laughs> according to the wisdom of Alexander Stewart, author of The Art of Hairdressing, or The Gentleman's Director, from 1788, if we peruse the historic page, we find that in all ages, from the remotest periods of antiquity to the present time, and in every state of human society, the dress or decoration of the hair has been the subject of much attention and in some measure the test of national taste and refinement. It might well deserve the attention of the historian and philosopher to trace the history and investigate the cause of this universal custom of dressing the hair. I don't know if we have the qualifications to talk about this, you know? <laughs> Right? Yeah, we, we make no pretensions to being philosophers of hairdressing. <laughs> However, we are going to dive into some of the history of men's hairstyles during this era. First, we'll look at who is cutting and maintaining gentlemen's hair during this time. Then, the cultural and political context for men's hairstyles. And finally, we'll talk about Frank's haircut particularly. We start with two similar professions barbers, and hairdressers. During the 18th and early 19th century, barbers were known specifically for their skill with the razor, which was something of a newly innovated technology. According to the article, at the edge of reason, shaving and razors in 18th century Britain, by Chris Evans and Alan Whitley, quote, in the mid-18th century, technological advances in steelmaking saw new varieties of the metal come onto the market, varieties that were well adapted to the needs of those who wielded a razor, tough and durable, yet able to be polished to a mirror shine. They were a godsend to a new generation of razor makers. So this is a real game changer. Yeah. And a barber's skill with a razor was one of the reasons this era also saw the rise of the barber surgeon, an individual who could be trusted with the razor to create clean cuts for bleeding individuals as a form of medical treatment. In fact, at one point, to become a medical surgeon, 
individuals had to have the approval from two barbers who could vouch for their skill with the razor. It makes sense, though, because those were the people who really were the most skilled and experienced yeah, with using on that. on a daily basis, using yeah. that razor on somebody's skin, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. With regards to men's fashion during this era, the style of the day really emphasized the clean-shaven face as an indicator of male refinement. So having a barber to give you a shave was very common. Less common was having a barber cutting and styling one's hair. So it is fairly likely that Frank is not traveling to London to visit a barber. It's much more likely that he is going to visit a hairdresser. According to The Book of Trades, or Library of the Useful Arts, published in 1815, the hairdresser cuts and dresses ladies' and gentlemen's hair. He makes wigs and braids, and in most cases, the business includes the art of shaving. The hairdresser requires scissors, combs, some powder, and pomatum, things too well known to stand in need of description. The principal requisites in a hairdresser are a light hand, an aptness in catching the changing fashions of the times, and a taste to improve upon them. Really focusing in on that kind of are you with the times thing. Hairdressers were much more style-oriented and really grew out of the demand for styling and maintaining wigs. At one point, they were seen more as wig makers and therefore more like someone who sells goods rather than someone who is providing a service. There were also journeyman hairdressers, so they could come to you, you know, very convenient. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, hairdressers would be who you turn to for styled hair pieces in the current fashion or for a haircut and style on your own hair, or a wig. And this is where things take a bit of a political turn. So at the end of the 18th century, William Pitt's government enacted the Duty on Hair Powder Act of 1795. The purpose of the tax was to generate revenue for the costly wars with France. The act required individuals to pay for an annual certificate for hair powder, which cost one guinea. This would be roughly the equivalent of 100 pounds today. What an interesting fundraiser. I just love that that's what they came up with. According to Stephen Dowell in A History of Taxation and Taxes in England from the Earliest Times to the Year 1885, quote, In 1796, the yield was 210,136 pounds, but thenceforth, the list of taxpayers diminished rapidly. In 1812, 46,684 persons in Great Britain still paid duty, and in 1819, 31,333 heads were charged. I love how precise those numbers are. Oh, I know. (laughs) So by 1855, the year the tax was repealed, less than 1,000 individuals paid the tax in England, and by then it only generated 1,000 pounds. Yeah, no, no longer really serving a function. Mm-hmm. This tax initially created a pretty clear political divide and generated some intense reactions from the public. Even the Scottish poet Robert Burns had something to say about the tax. And since this episode is airing very close to January 25th, which is Robert Burns Day or Burns Night, it seems fitting to consult his thoughts on the hair powder tax. So here it is, Robert Burns' short poem, called On Mr. Pitt's Hair Powder Tax. Pray, Billy Pitt, explain thy rigs, this new poll tax of thine, 
I mean to mark the guinea pigs from other common swine. Very short, (laughs) to the point. But the joke here being that people who paid the one guinea tax were called guinea pigs by the opposition. And the opposition largely eschewed both powder and wigs as a form of protest. I mean, there are worse insults because guinea pigs are adorable. So, you know. (laughs) This is accurate, right? Mm -hmm. Guinea pigs are, are adorable. Burns wasn't the only one to take to literature to lampoon the hair powder tax. Peter Pindar, a popular and prolific literary satirist of the day, wrote a rather lengthy poem titled Hair Powder, A Plaintive Epistle to Mr. Pitt, which includes sections that depict the weeping woes of barbers and hairdressers alike. And while the satire obviously inherently tries to make light of the situation, this tax really did hit hairdressers particularly hard since they needed hair powder as a form of advertisement for their skills and as a way to sell their wares. So it seems the hair powder tax might have ushered in a new era of men's hairstyles. As with most fashion trends, these shifts often have a lot more nuance than an overnight event. So there is debate about whether the hair powder tax was the epicenter of the shift away from hair powder and wigs. Those styles were already likely on their way out of fashion by the time the tax was implemented. And therefore, the tax likely only hastened the shift. Yeah. And obviously, some people still wore wigs and powdered their hair for decades after the tax. But the young men of the era really are where we see hairstyles shifting most overtly. So right in Frank Churchill's wheelhouse here. Yes, absolutely. We do have an example of a very clearly political movement from wigs and hair powder to short hair in the figure of the fifth Duke of Bedford. Bedford chose to adopt a cropped hairstyle as a form of protest of the tax, and he got his friends to follow suit. On September 26, 1795, the London Chronicle reported that a few days ago at Woburn Abbey, a general cropping and combing out of hair took place. The article then lists the names of about 10 men who had their hair cropped, and then it continues to say, They entered into an engagement to forfeit a sum of money if any of them wore their hair tied or powdered within a certain period. Many noblemen and gentlemen in the county of Bedford have since followed the example. It has become general within the gentry in Hampshire, and the ladies have left off wearing powder. So he's a real trendsetter at this Mm -hmm. Bedford. (laughs) Around the same time that the Bedford crop came onto the scene, other short hairstyles started to become popular, and many, not surprisingly, came from classical illusions. The Caesar, the Brutus, and the Titus were a few of these eponymous hairstyles. There's some pretty grandiose haircut titles there. Right. Embracing the self-aggrandizement that mm-hmm. comes with that kind of hairstyle. Here I am with my Caesar. Yes, yes. So, for example, the Titus cut, or the Coiffeur à la Titus was incredibly popular. According to Carol Riefel's book, Coiffeur, Hair in 19th Century French Literature and Culture, this style was a, quote, layered cut with curls around the head for both men and women. It was purportedly named after a role played by the actor Talma, who played Titus while sporting this hairstyle, in a production of Voltaire's Brutus. This style was so popular that in 1802, according to the Journal de Paris, 
more than half of the elegant women were wearing their hair a la Titus. So it was it was very popular. Yeah, this was this was the Rachel of its time. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. The other hairstyles have different variations, but they largely amount to short hair in the back and a bit more length and texture on the top and sides. The Caesar is a very short cut with horizontally straight cut bangs or fringe, like the Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar Augustus. The Brutus was favored by Beau Brummel and emphasized adding height at the top of the head. So think of Hugh Bonneville's version of Mr. Rushworth in the 1999 adaptation of Mansfield Park. The windswept is actually exactly what it sounds like, with the hair on top <laughs> artfully swept up and tousled on one's head. You know, it's like yes. casual elegance. Like, oh, I just woke up like this. Yes, absolutely. And my favorite style from this era is called the frightened owl, <laughs> which was really just like curls pushed forward in kind of a and, and like really disheveled. So a little bit longer than the other ones, and then just really emphasizing pushing all that hair to the front of your head. Guinea pigs and frightened owls. I love it. Yes. I'm into all of these animal references. Frank's decision to get a haircut from London, 16 miles away, is a character flaw as the people around him in Highbury perceive it. It would have been seen as a bit of an irresponsible use of resources, Time, money, horses, and I think especially time when you think about the fact that it's taking him away from the family that he's there to visit. Yeah. Like he just got there and then he's like, oh, let me take an entire day away to go get my hair cut. Nobody in Highbury seems to think that this is a great idea. A great idea that makes complete sense. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's not that any of them think that it's a glaring flaw, but it's Something that everyone's kind of like, oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, Knightley probably thinks it's a glaring flaw. (laughs) Well, obviously he does. He's like, no, there's there are no excuses. What is this? What is this? According to Wendy Veronica Shin's article, The Importance of Being Frank, quote, the perfectionist attention to his hair supplies his single imperfection. (laughs) (laughs) He's almost perfect. And Emma considers his actions to have a air of foppery and nonsense, as she says at the top of the episode. Um, and she's like, okay, I, I, I really can't approve of that sort of behavior. And then Mr. Weston, of course, he laughs at it because he's just all about good fun. But he does call his son a coxcomb. And Mrs. Weston, quote, did not like it, which is made even clearer when she tries to gloss over it as kind of just a, a youthful whim. Mm-hmm. And so these are the reactions of the three people in Highbury who are Frank's loudest supporters. They're the ones who are really his champions. And all three of them are just kind of like, we don't know what to do about that either. (laughs) The use of fop and coxcomb, since they are both synonyms with the term dandy, is closely associated with Beau Brummel and the young set of wealthy men of the period. So these were the Regency hipsters out about town. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And while we have no description of the haircut that Frank receives, it's fairly easy to conclude that it is one of the close-cropped hairstyles adopted by the dandy set. I mean, why bother otherwise? Right, yeah. So that's definitely signaling something about, about Frank's character and everything. Another one of the reasons that this behavior might have been perceived as odd was that it was fairly common for men of Frank's social standing to have a valet, 
this would be someone who would have been fully capable of providing a haircut for his employers. We know this because according to Emma Markievicz in her doctoral thesis, Hair, Wigs, and Wig Wearing in 18th Century England, quote, By 1780, adverts for hairdressers in London newspapers were regularly posted by individuals seeking a valet with the ability to dress hair or wigs, and by individuals advertising themselves as valets offering such skills. The ability to dress ladies' or gentlemen's hair is mentioned regularly in such advertisements for valets or butlers. So with Frank rushing off to London, this is this is uh, potentially like a vote of no confidence in his valet. It's <laughs> like, I need someone who's more cutting edge. You have to hope that his valet is sort of in on everything that's going on oh, yeah. with Jane Fairfax. So he can be like, listen, I promise it's not about you. You're a great valet. <laughs> I have to go to London. Yeah. Otherwise, the guy's like, mm, handing in my notice. That was <laughs> that was rude. <laughs> These idiosyncrasies in Frank's behavior lead us to the same question that Shin poses in her article. Quote, Why does the novel devote so much narrative description to the service of so inconsequential an event? As if for no other reason than to literalize the saying, the narration gets caught up in splitting hairs. Oh, I love a good academic pun. I love that. Because she's right. At the end of the novel, we finally learn that the haircut was really... Yet another decoy from his engagement to Jane, since he actually goes to London to order a Broadwood piano for her. It really has been an effective ruse because, you know, they've, they've all been focusing on the haircut. Shin goes on to provide a really great summary of this scene and how it fits within the larger narrative. Quote, in a brilliant syntactical inversion, Frank tactically cuts off locks of his hair, thus reversing the trope of the woman who gives her fiancé a clipped curl as a sentimental souvenir. The cut hair gets swapped out for a haircut, as it were. The brazen carelessness of the haircut acts as a decoy, distracting readers both from his actual London mission and thus from his secret engagement to Jane. And a curious paradox that will have ramifications for our understanding of both plot and literary character, it is precisely because the haircut calls attention to itself that it provides the best disguise. So, you know, it's sleight of hand. Like, look over here. Yeah. Look over here. When he comes back and everybody's like, okay, you know, your hair looks okay. Like, (laughs) he's so good at just laughing it off. Like, he kind of owns that this was bizarre behavior. And so, yeah, he really embraces the fact that it's it's the red herring, essentially. It's part of that whole reading Emma as a mystery plot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and then, you know, again, we, we don't know what Frank's haircut looks like, but we can probably assume it was one of these very... Very trendy haircuts. And what's interesting is that we are seeing a bit more of these Regency-era hairstyles in popular adaptations like Bridgerton, of course, but they're also fairly visible in current Gen Z trends. This was actually a focus of an article in the New York Times in 2021. Dania Isui's piece, Thinking Hard About Their Hair, really focuses on parallels between Regency hairstyles and hairstyles that are on, t- on TikTok right now. If you're wanting to see some of these Regency haircuts, apparently this is cool on TikTok right now, which I love. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Which is interesting because in in Austin's adaptations, we're not actually getting the haircut scene. Like like this seems like it would be something that we could maybe lean into, but it doesn't really seem to get much play. 
I can see how it would sort of just complicate the plot a little bit if you're trying to stick to a certain runtime. But sure. if there was any adaptation where they could have really incorporated it quite seamlessly, it would have been the 1996 Emma because Frank Churchill, as played by Ewan McGregor, has a full Fabio thing going on. So right. it would have been very dramatic to like have yeah. some, had him go away to London halfway through the film and come back with this completely different hairstyle. Right. Yeah, they, that would have definitely like been a very obvious visual cue as to what happened. Yeah. Apparently, McGregor had really short hair when he filmed that. Um, I think Train Spotting was released the same year and he had a shaved head in that film. So they have him wearing a kind of longer wig in this in this film adaptation. And McGregor himself was like, you know, <laughs> he said in a, in a 2003 interview with The Observer, he says it's it's quite a laugh, you know, checking that wig out. Yeah, that is curious that Knightley actually has, for the time period, the more trendy hairstyle. Right. And yeah. Ewan McGregor, as Frank Churchill, is definitely sporting a much kind of like more old fashioned look. Yeah, a lot more conservative hairstyle than than you would expect from someone who's supposed to be the dashing dude that comes yeah. into Highbury, for sure. Well, if you happen to be trying out one of these Regency hairstyle trends as seen on TikTok, we mm. want to hear all about it. Yes. Yes, we do. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And we always love hearing from our listeners, mm -hmm. which speaking of listeners, we want to wish listener Becky a very, very happy birthday from her partner, Sean, and their dog, Riley, and from the two of us as well. Yes. So happy birthday. Many happy returns, Becky. We hope you have an amazing birthday. Yes, absolutely. And stay tuned for our next episode, where we will be talking about speculation in Mansfield Park with Dr. Regulus Allen. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.